0: It's a Hawaiian shirt Tuesday, apparently. So keeping it bright, keeping it bright. Great to be with some of you uh, around pancake breakfast and see some of you around the lake today. And uh, we're going to continue in the series, "The Gospel in Genesis." And uh, we, we've hung out for three weeks in Genesis one, two and three. We've looked at uh, just God's wisdom and wonder in creation. We've looked at the corruption of that creation through the fall, but we've seen the, the glimpses of God as a redeemer, in the, even in the midst of the curse, how he's redeeming by covering Adam and Eve in their shame and sin in uh, skins with skins. And we see that beautiful glimpse, the proto-evangelon, Genesis 2, verse 15, that in the midst of the curse, as God is cursing Satan, he says, he promises to the woman, from the offspring of your womb will come one who the the serpent will strike, but his heel will crush the serpent's head. And so there's this hope of victory through Christ's cross and resurrection, even in the midst of the curse. And we just glimpse the gospel in such powerful ways, not only God's good and wise and beautiful design, but also the way he redeems his creation back to his intention forward. And I know that I mean, we've got three sessions left, and there's a real tendency to focus in on, in, in 50 chapters, the greatest hits of Genesis. You know, the flood, Genesis 12, the call uh, of Abraham. But I love preaching those, but I, I, I'm kind of interested in what I would call some of the B-side, stories in Genesis, not just the greatest hits. Some of those lesser, lesser preached texts. And tonight I'm going to preach one that you may have heard preached, but uh, I certainly had not preached it until about a year ago. And it's the story of Hagar, uh, which is Genesis 16 from verse 1 to 16. And so we're kind of fast-forwarding through the flood. We're even fast-forwarding through the call of Abraham and Sarah. And I'll just recap a little bit that that God, even after this this terrible tumultuous flood, he brings his covenant, his his rainbow, Uh, his war bow is uh, actually reversed. He says, no longer, never again will I flood the earth, Uh, but actually the bow will be pointing up towards heaven. In other words, I will actually take the wrath that was due to you. He was foreshadowing the cross. And then after that, he doubles down on his promise to bless the world through the family. Even though the family has got so corrupt, he doubles down and he calls this man Abraham. And Abraham is, uh, is a pagan. He, he was not looking for God. And uh, he, as a 75-year-old, with his wife 65, Sarai, he makes them an astounding promise, an outrageous promise, that uh, not only will I give you a son, a child of promise, but actually your descendants will bless the nations. And uh, there's this amazing moment where it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that is A wonderful glimpse of the gospel. The apostle Paul in Romans 4 talks about how this is our justification by faith. There was no law to obey, to make him righteous. But it was actually that he just believed the promise of God. He believed him who could call out of nothing. He could call something. And uh, Hebrews 11, describing this amazing faith, says, Abraham considered his body and and, and his wife's body, and considered that it was as good as dead. (laughs) And you can imagine, Abraham, that conversation must have not gone well. Him and Sarah, you and I, you are as good as dead. (laughs) And I I reckon he slept on the couch that night, or outside the tent. Um, But actually, it said he considered his body and his wife's body, but then he considered him who was faithful. Isn't that amazing? You, You know, faith doesn't deny the facts is able to look at the facts and say, this situation is as good as dead. But then faith then considers him who is faithful and says, but God, you are able to do this. And uh, so he, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's what happens when we are saved. We look at our own life and we say, I am dead in my sins. There's no ways I can save myself. But I look at my deadness and then I consider him who is faithful. And, uh, and that's the kernel of faith. Now, I want to pick up four chapters later. This is now 10 years after the promise, and nothing has happened. There ain't no child of promise, and all they're seeing is their old bodies are getting deader and deader. In the words of John Mayer, gravity, gravity. They're just looking and saying, gravity, gravity. It's getting worse and worse. The wrinkles are getting longer and longer. This ain't going to happen. And there's this moment where, Abraham, who is called the father of our faith. Sarah, who is called the mother of our faith. they are. Let's just remember that it's not just Christianity that looks at Abraham as an example of faith and moral fortitude. All three major religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, look at Abraham and Sarah as a model of faith and fortitude. And yet we're going to look in Genesis 16 at them on their worst day. And I hope it's going to give us hope. Because at the end of their life, God still looks and says, that's the father and mother of your faith. But this was not a moment of faith. This was a royal failure. Our uh, kids have got this app called Be Real. Any of you got the Be Real? Uh, and Be Real is kind of, whoa, man, you got it, huh? Hey? It's, it's, it's kind of a, a moment pushing back against Everyone on social media that puts their best foot forward and takes their best life now photo and says, look at me, be real is going like, that's not your real life. So at a certain time of every day, no matter where you are, you take a photo of yourself. And in the background is like your dirty dishes or your dirty laundry or like, you know, you don't have a beautiful big roast beef. You just got like, you know, I don't know, MacD's, you know, and it's saying, this is me. I'm being real. Genesis 16, we'll get there now, is Abraham and Sarai's be-real photo. The only problem is that their be-real photo would have got them canceled today. Uh, We would not take a be-real of our lives uh, if the husband was kicking the dog in the background. Or the son was watching porn in the background. You, you, our be-reels are like kind of be-reels. Messy dishes is okay. And, and, and I want us to steal ourselves, because in this passage, there is sexual exploitation. There, there is actually violence. And God is not condoning these things. God is not saying these things are, are right. God is actually making a point by saying, I am able to bless the unblessable. I'm able to show my favor to those who do not deserve it. He's making a point about the gospel. So let's read it together. We're going to read it in the NLT. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened 10 years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, This is all your fault. I put my servant in your arms. But now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. Abram replied, look, she is your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Then Sarai treated Hagar so harshly that she finally ran away. Angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to Shur. The angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. Then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. And the angel also said, you are now pregnant and will give birth to a son. You are to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. For the Lord has heard your cry of distress. This son of yours will be a wild man, as untamed as a wild donkey. He will raise his fist against everyone, and everyone will be against him. Yes, he will live in open hostility against all his relatives. Therefore, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? So that well was named Beer Lahai Roy, which means well of the living one who sees me. It can still be found between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar gave Abram a son and Abram named him Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. So it's been 10 years since God has promised Isaac, the child of promise. And as I talk about the broad theme of being freed by the God who sees, there's there's such beauty in this passage, even though it's a brutal passage. There's slavery, there's sexual exploitation, there's actually violence. That word, Sarai, mistreated Hagar. Uh, actually, in the Hebrew, it's she, she physically assaulted her. It's a brutal passage, and yet there's this incredible beauty in the midst of brutality where, where Hagar, in her mistreatment, she sees the God who sees her. And we'll get to that in, in a moment. But I want us to look at the fact that we have Sarai, who 10 years after the delay of the promise would now be around 76. And Abram is 86. And as I say, all they see is their bodies getting older and older and this promise seemingly getting less and less likely. And so she begins to take matters into her own hands. I want to say that there is an obvious slavery in Hagar, but there's a more subtle slavery, and that is that Sarai is enslaved to the idea of having a child. And we need to empathize with her because as she says in verse 2, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from having children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. that that, that the pain of of waiting for this promise has made her bitter. And the bitterness has has actually caused her not just to go, "Well, well, God has been slow in keeping His promise. She actually says, no, God has prevented me. So bitterness has caused her to really mistrust the promise of God and mistrust the heart of God. And that can happen to all of us when promises are slow. We can so easily look through our circumstances at the character of God and our circumstances begin to embitter us against God rather than looking at our circumstances through the lens of the character of God, what we know about God. And so she's starting to think of God as someone who's actually working against. He has prevented me from bearing children. And this sounds like an extreme statement, but let's just remember that Infertility in this culture was like the biggest curse. Because to be significant in this culture was to have children, was to have descendants, was to have a sense of a faith being passed on and wealth being passed on. This was significance. Now in our culture, the idea of having children, it still might be important to many, And infertility is incredibly painful to anyone. But in our culture, we found other ways of being significant if you can't have kids. And so things like career and education, often very good things, and relationship and and doing good things often can somehow fill that hole that a child might leave. One of the things that I love in our church is that a number of, chi- of, of parents who have struggled to have their own biological children have fostered and adopted, and it's just a beautiful thing. This, this was not done in these times, and so it was culturally acceptable for a slave, a servant, to be a surrogate because you just had to have children. And so in many ways, Sarah was doing what was culturally acceptable, And yet, God called them to live by faith, not like the pagan nations around them. And so she moved into action, believing that God was inactive. And I want us to to think about this, because faith is not opposed to action. Even saving faith actually produces action. If you believe and don't obey, James 1 says, you didn't believe in the first place. And so so God is not opposed to action at all. I mean, Jesus was the only human ever born of no sexual action. I'm not being crass here, but the promise to Abraham and Sarah had to be followed up with some action. They had to take action at some point. God is not opposed to action. What God is opposed to is when we take action, believing that God is inactive. That births an Ishmael, and that's incredibly messy. I don't have time to go into the terrible fruit of Ishmael today, but we know, in terms of the great conflict, in terms of what Islam brings... This was birthed out of someone taking action, believing God was inactive. And there's a warning here against that. This is a, this is a fall from grace. You know, uh, psychologists call, talk, talk about people responding to difficulty in one of three ways. Either fight, flight, or freeze. Well, here you see Sarai fighting. He's like, okay, God, if you're not going to fight for me, I'm going to fight. You sleep, buddy, husband, you sleep with the the servant. I'm going to fight. And what you see with Abram, you see freeze. You see freeze. Abram is abdicating his spiritual leadership, and he's actually colluding with Sarai. What should Abram have done? He should have said, No, my love, I know this has been 10 years, but God promised. And that same God who promised 10 years ago is faithful. Let's do it his way. Let's not make an Ishmael. Let's do it his way. Let's be patient. That's what he should have done. But instead, verse 2, it says, Abraham listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah. Now, let me just press pause here. The Bible is not saying here that husbands should never listen to the voice of their wives. I've often been saved from terrible things from listening to the wife, the voice of my wife Renelle because she's wise. But actually Moses who's writing here uses the exact same phrase as Adam in Genesis 3 Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Eve, when she was tempted by the serpent. He's wanting us to realize that it's not just about listening to a wife. It's about listening to a wife who's operating in unbelief. And actually, in the chapter before... Abraham lies to Abimelech about Sarai and says, oh, she's my sister. And at that point, she should not have listened to her husband because he was acting in unbelief. This is not about whether husbands listen to wives, wives listen to husbands. It's saying, when you listen to one another, make sure that the person you're listening to is acting in faith, not unbelief. Amen. There's such power that comes when a marriage is united. But... The counterfeit of unity is collusion. When a husband and wife in unbelief say, God is not active, let's take matters into our own hands. And God is warning us against that. And Abraham says this, I gave you my servant... And the word there is essentially, I put her on your lap. Abraham is, is basically saying, look, I couldn't do anything about it. You just put her on my lap, and I just, I just had to sleep with her. In other words, he's not going out to sleep with her. He's just, he's just being passive. And, and there's a warning against passivity. And God is saying that actually the role of a husband is to remind his wife, That God is faithful. I don't have a lot of time to go into what it means to lead your wives. But a husband and wife are called to be a team. Much of our teaming is actually just collaborating and obeying God together. But there are moments when actually a husband is called to lead. And I've found in almost 30 years of being married, the moments at which I feel God's grace to lead is when there is a moment where it seems like God is not faithful and God has called me to remind my wife, remind my kids, God is faithful. Adam abdicated and Abraham abdicated. There's nothing wrong with a strong woman, but there's plenty wrong with a passive man. I want to challenge you men to not abdicate spiritual responsibility. Let's trust God together. And so God calls us to take action, but take action from a place of faith. Uh, uh, Jesus described it so beautifully in John chapter 15, where he says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. But if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit. In other words, Jesus does call us to to bear fruit, to, to do some stuff, but from a place of abiding in him of faith, that actually we produce fruit, fruit that lasts. I want to say, man, there have been times when I have been so tempted to take action, often, almost every month, out of unbelief, believing that God is inactive. Because I am a front-footed guy, I'm a leader, I'm an entrepreneur, and often I'm just impatient. How about you? And in 1990, I came as an 18-year-old to California with Youth for Christ. I was wandering through Muir Woods, north of here, on a prayer walk, listening to, I'm dating myself now, Michael W. Smith's Place in This World on my Sony cassette Walkman. There we go, right? Real Gen Xer. And I, I don't know how to describe it except... God met me in Muir Woods. It wasn't an audible voice, but I became absolutely persuaded that the Lord was calling me to live and preach the gospel in California as an 18-year-old South African. I just started dating Renelle. She didn't even have a passport. I went home and I said, if you and I get married, you need to know one day we're going to live and preach the gospel in California. And we made visits every now and again, back here, doing some ministry, etc. But boy, 15 years later and nothing had happened. And uh, we'd been married, we'd been pastoring for a while, and this strange little invitation came for us to come and spend six months here with the church every year. And I thought, yes, this is it. This is it, finally, the promise is coming true. And I didn't kind of consult the Lord. We went to the leaders in our church, and we said, this invitation has come. We feel like it's God. We want to go. And actually, to a man and to a woman, all of them just said, we believe it's the wrong door. We we believe it's not. And I was so angry. I was so angry. Probably for about a week, I was just like, "Stuff them. I'm just going. But God gave us this check, and we actually stayed Another four years. And during that time, we took the leadership of another church, and God just did some deep, deep maturing in us. We eventually arrived uh, last day of 2007 in California. And about a year later, Ronell turned to me and said, Man, I'm so glad we didn't rush five years ago. Because if we'd come to California five years ago, California wouldn't, would have eaten us up and spell us out. We weren't ready. We weren't ready. We often just remind ourselves of those moments because we were ready to birth an Ishmael in that moment. And we actually believed God had forgotten us, so we were going to take matters into our own hands. And I want to encourage us. I know I'm belaboring the point. God is not looking for passivity, but He is looking for activity coming from faith, not unbelief. Amongst friends, in your families, husbands and wives... When you're about to make a big decision, take action. Do a little litmus test. Do we see God at work? Or are we acting because we believe God is inactive? It's a good little litmus test. Second big idea here, and this is the beautiful moment of Hagar, the mistreated slave, that when we realize that God is attentive to the injustice we suffer, It frees us to obey him. So you have Sarai who's fighting, you have Abraham who's freezing, and now you have Hagar who's taking flight. And I can't blame her. I think I would take flight too, don't you? I mean, she has been forced to be impregnated by her boss. And then she has been physically abused by her boss's wife. And she runs. And she starts heading back to Egypt. And the Lord meets her, the angel of the Lord, at the well. And the angel said, go back and submit to your mistress. Isn't that outrageous? (laughs) That's not freedom. Break free. How can you be saying that, God? It's crazy. But then she says this. Something astounding, she says, So she called the name of the Lord, who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So God, we know, has actually purposed to bless the world, not through Ishmael, but through Isaac, the son of promise. That's where the family of faith would come from. That's where Israel would come from. That's where Jesus would come from, birthing the church. And yet God in his magnanimous heart is able to bless Ishmael. He would be a wild donkey of a man, but God says, I will bless him. And he will cause hostility, but I will still bless him. And you can see just the compassionate heart of God for for Hagar, who's not actually going to be the one through whom the line of Jesus comes but he still says, I see you. And he actually says that he will advocate for her. And so the command to go back and submit to your boss is not just like, man, just be mistreated again. God is saying, I can bless you even though you have been mistreated. This is a different lesson and it's a beautiful lesson and it's this, that when people mistreat you, they are not in charge of God's ability to bless you. Now I think today in our victim culture, and we can look at this and say this is unjust, and it is unjust, and God is not condoning this injustice, but what he is saying is I am greater than injustice. And actually the greatest injustice is not in charge of my grace and compassion and power to bless you. Further on, in Genesis 39, we'll see a similar thing happening with Joseph as he's sold into slavery by his brothers. And then he's falsely accused of rape. I mean, Genesis does not pull the punches, does it? I mean, it's got all the dirt. It's got, it has got should have a PG rating. But yeah, he's mistreated by part of his wife. At the beginning of Genesis 39, it says, and the Lord was with Joseph and he blessed him in everything he did. And at the end of all this... False accusation, exactly the same thing. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he blessed him, and all he did. God is saying, mistreatment is not in charge of my ability to bless you. And out of this, out of this understanding of God, that God is not blind to injustice, she musters up faith to go back. But before she goes back, she does something astounding. She calls God a name. She confers a name upon God. Uh, Bruce Wolke, who is one of the great Genesis commentators, says this about this moment. He says, Hagar is the only person in Scripture given the dignity of conferring a name upon God. Now, of course, other writers of Scripture respond to the way God reveals himself. God reveals and speaks, I am Yahweh. And Moses writes that down. Yahweh, gracious and compassionate. But she is the only person in Scripture, Welke says, who actually says, I've seen something, and I'm actually making up a new name for God because I have understood that he is the God who sees. Isn't that beautiful? Can we see the incredible grace, the dignity that God gives to a Gentile, exploited slave, showing God's heart to bless the nations, even though his line would come through Isaac. When you and I are mistreated, in home, in employment, perhaps in a romantic relationship, perhaps even by our parents, perhaps by your kids, the first thing we generally go to is, no one understands me. No one understands my pain. Satan would love us to think that we are absolutely unique in our suffering. And it's natural to feel that way. No one sees me. No one understands me. But actually, this conferring of this new name, El Roy, you are a God of seeing, (laughs) convinces us that God is not blind to our sufferings. I love in the Psalm, Psalm 56, where David, who has been so terribly treated by Saul, He writes to God and he says, God keeps track of all my sorrows. God collects all my tears in a bottle. Isn't that beautiful? It's another way of saying God is the God who sees. Isn't it amazing to to think that God is a God who keeps track of our sorrows? That not one tear falls to the ground without God collecting it in his bottle. God is this very attentive physician of the soul who says, not one of your tears fell to the ground without me collecting it. I'm actually keeping a track of all your sorrows. This is what we see. And we know that this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus where Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who's been tempted in every way and yet without sin. Jesus is the sympathetic high priest. And we know that the Holy Spirit is called the comforter. God sees you in your struggles and in your mistreatment. Doesn't that give you hope? Hope it gives you hope. You're not alone. And even if other people can't fully understand, it's a wonderful thing to find an empathetic friend. Empathetic counsellor, empathetic spouse. But actually even at moments where they can't understand, God is the God who sees. God is the God who keeps track. God is the God who collects every tear in a bottle. And then of course we've got to go to the command of the angel doing the unthinkable go back and submit to your to your boss and that does not mean let me just be clear that does not mean that god is saying every abused spouse should go back to their abuser does not mean that every person in an abusive church situation must go back this is a particular situation a particular command and renella and i have somehow been given even the either the burden or blessing or both of walking with many many leaders who've come from very abusive church situations. And and sometimes the call is actually to move on. But let's just press pause and go, man, when we understand that God actually is not blind to the injustice we suffer and is actually willing to advocate for us, it often gives us more gas in the tank to be faithful in a less than ideal situation. And part of for me the blessing of being in a church that has what I would call more seasoned saints. Our oldest member is 94 years old. And and we've got plenty of 60, 70, 80 year olds, is that they've lived long enough to see God come through for them in faithfulness in difficult situations. And us younger ones, I'm only fifty one. We, we often we tap out too quickly because we just believe God cannot bless us, and actually that unjust boss or unjust friend is in charge of my blessing. But actually, people who have just gutted out, trusting God, always come through with a sense of Wow, God was in charge. That was tough. I wouldn't like to do that again, but God was in charge. And I would encourage you, if you find yourself in a difficult situation, get yourself around an Art, a Becky, a seasoned saint who can give you encouragement to stay long enough to see God advocate for you. Our oldest pastor and our staff is a man called Kirk Randolph. And when we arrived at the church in 2007, it was going through a torrid time, and he had been there already for 15 years. And uh, the church was going through a lawsuit, an internal lawsuit over the sale of a property. And we were like, what have we come to? And, and Kirk, Kirk and Manny just an incredibly godly couple. They were then in their 50s. And uh, the church was doing so poorly, uh, he, most of the people were not being paid. And one day I said to Kirk, how are you living? And, and, and he said, oh, well, we're just living off our savings and our mortgage. And they did that for a year. And eventually God brought us through, and they were able to get paid back. But it was absolutely torrid. The church probably lost 200 people through that lawsuit. And, and God gave this man and his wife staying power. He is now a year away from retirement, He's 69. And he sat with me the other day and he said, you know, I'm so glad we stayed long enough to see the faithfulness of God in this church. And he said, I never thought that the second half of my ministry here would be more blessed than the first half. I was like, man, I just wanted to cry. It's like, man... Thank the Lord for men and women that stood the test of time long enough to see God advocate for them. And he goes into retirement, not full retirement, but with a sense of this last 15 years was more blessed than the first. And that's something of the lesson of Hagar. She went back because she knew God saw her and she knew God was able to bless her. You willing to do that? I'm not telling you to stay in your situation. I'm just saying it could be that many of us tap out too soon. Just a little bit, little bit of a Presbyterian amen there. I'm coming to land here, but I've been fascinated by what's now being called the Asbury Awakening, which uh, has taken place in the last year at Asbury Seminary. And uh, Asbury is a, an evangelical seminary, and uh, they've actually had quite a long history of through the the Second Great Awakening hundreds of years ago, experiencing massive repentance and salvation. And um, so earlier this year, it began with a prayer meeting where, I mean, I listened to the, the sermon before this prayer meeting, and it was a very average sermon. But the Lord just fell in conviction upon the student population, and they began to repent. And eventually, the dean of academic studies, put all studies on hold for that day and just called all students to the chapel because repentance was happening. That prayer meeting lasted 10 days. 10 days. That was around April. And so they're calling it the Asbury Awakening, and it is legitimate. Of course, whenever revival sort of stuff happens, there's some extreme, but it's marked primarily by repentance and holiness and salvation. It's just wonderful. And we in our church have had students that have gone and come back, just changed. And it's actually resulted in Biola, which is a campus that we have a lot to do with, similar kinds of long extended prayer meetings of repentance. And uh, I've just been so fascinated reading about uh, the roots of Asbury. And there's this legend of a man called Harry Hoosier, who was born, uh, an African-American man, a slave in 1750. And by 1781, he was a free man. And he was actually converted under the preaching of Francis Asprey, who was the founding president of Asprey Seminary, 1781. And he became the carriage driver of the president. Isn't it amazing? And he was an illiterate man, but he actually sat under preaching and began to grow in his love for Scripture and began to become a formidable preacher, an eloquent preacher. And he was actually, history tells us, that he was the first black man in the U.S. ever to preach to a white audience. Uh, Francis Asprey recognized the gift on him. And so he, he called him to kind of be the opening act for his preaching. And they would travel around. And then he kind of started to upstage the president because he was so eloquent and uh, so passionate, so effective. And when people would get saved by, in their droves, they would have a phrase, they got hoosiered. There was such a power and an anointing on this man's preaching. And actually, uh, the word Hoosiers from the Indiana state comes from Harry Harry Hoosier because there was such a sweeping revival of repentance across Indiana. Isn't it amazing? And so he became a key preacher in the Second Great Awakening. And he was actually eulogized as the African wonder. It's beautiful. A carriage driver... Serving a seminary president. And I just find myself thinking, there's something. I'm not saying he was mistreated under the president, but certainly he was mistreated as a slave. And yet there was this sense in which he was just faithful where he was at. And God used him powerfully. And I want to use that little story to encourage us to be faithful to. All right, let's land in the gospel application. And that is that the Apostle Paul takes this Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah analogy. And in Galatians 4.22, he says this, Listen, you who want to save yourselves by obeying the law, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically, these women are two covenants. So we can learn some great lessons, I believe, about not acting prematurely out of unbelief, about sticking it out through hard situations because God sees us and He can advocate for us. But actually, the greater learning, the Apostle Paul looks at this and says, it's actually an allegory about the old covenant of the law and the new covenant of grace. And let's land in there because that's the greater learning. Amen? And it's this, that when the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians who were stuck going back into the law, having tasted grace, he referenced this chapter as an allegory. He illustrated two covenants, Old Covenant and New. And and Hagar represents the Old Covenant, which is salvation by works. Well, God isn't going to save me, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's what legalists do. They don't believe God is powerful enough to save, so I'm just going to do it myself. And it produces a terrible Ishmael. But actually, the New Covenant says that God actually is faithful to His promise. And salvation doesn't come from my faithfulness and my performance, but from Christ's performance. And God always looks at Christ's performance and says, that's acceptable. In the words of Dallas Willard, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. The old covenant is trying to earn God's salvation. The new covenant is saying, I can't earn it. But God, through his son, purchased it wonderfully for me. Ultimately, true freedom is not achieved through our own works. It is received. Said of Jesus, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. This is the gospel. We don't achieve salvation. We receive it. It's not through clenched fists. It's through open hands. <laughs> to those who did receive him. He gave the right. To become children of God. You and I. Are children of promise. If we stop trying to achieve. And we receive. God's scandalous. Unmerited favor. Amen. Let's pray. Father thank you so much that you are the God who sees. Jesus, thank you that you are the high priest who sympathizes. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the one who comforts. Lord, thank you that when we experience injustice, when we are mistreated, that's not nothing, but it's not the ultimate thing. We thank you that you are in charge of blessing and advocating for us. I pray that you would give us staying power in difficult situations. And Father, I thank you that true freedom does not come from achieving, not come from taking matters into our own hands. It comes from receiving. As that old hymn says, lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Trust in Him and Him alone and stand in Him complete. Let's respond with a song of praise.